0: If you have your Bibles, you can open to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. We've been going through this series in the book of Corinthians. Today we're going to be wrapping up not just chapter 7, but this first section that we've been uh, looking at together. Uh, If you recall, in this uh, outline that we looked at uh, several months ago, there are three parts to this book that we want to look at. And the first part, the first section that we've been looking at is Paul kind of explaining his ministry. Paul's been talking about... um, to, to this church about the things that he's been doing to them, and ha- he's had to defend the things that he's done, the motives that he's had, um, and his authority amongst them. Because what happened is these false teachers came into the church and tried telling the church, "Don't listen to Paul anymore. Paul Paul's a bad guy. Okay, he has, he has selfish motives. He's been leading you astray. Don't listen to Paul anymore." And so Paul's had to defend who he is, and his love for them. This has developed this really kind of complicated relationship between him and the church. Paul has been wounded very deeply by this church that he loved, that he that he helped nurture to become a, a church that loved God, and now they've turned their back on him and, and started walking away from, from God himself in the gospel. So Paul has been seeking to mend this relationship, and so he's been spending these first seven chapters explaining to the church who he is, and to remind them of his heart for them. So today we're going to end that section, and then next week we're going to look for two weeks, we're going to look at Paul encouraging the generosity of of the church. That's what we're really going to press you guys to to give us more money. No, that's not what's going to happen. And then the third section, Paul enforces his authority to remind them that his authority doesn't, it's not about him, it's the authority he's been given from God, and we look at that in the final four chapters. Uh, as many as you know, I coach a, a high school basketball team here in town, and uh, we, a couple, about, about a month ago, we hit a rough patch, lost a couple games we shouldn't have lost, and, um, and, and we're just kind of struggling. And the bigger problem that I saw was that we as a team weren't listening and obeying that they weren't doing what, what they were being asked to do. And so to do to, to, to look at this, I, I wanted to see a change. I wanted to see a change in the team. I wanted to see a, a different outcome. And so I had to do something. If, I want, if you want a drastic change, oftentimes that requires drastic measures. And so after that weekend, we came back to Monday uh, practice, and we had what we call a pain party. Johnny was there. It Was pain party funny? Fun, Johnny? It's not fun, is it? No and it's uh it's not the kind of party with balloons and streamers and cakes it's a party that involves a lot of running and sweating we only had one guy vomit so that was good um but but it reminded them they didn't like that okay they, they didn't it was not enjoyable okay it brought them momentary sorrow momentary sadness but it was worth it because what it, of what it produced And what we saw on the team was a change of attitude and a change of behavior. In the the next couple weeks, we were an entirely different team. And and, and what we learn from that is that often, and kind of the synopsis of today's word from Paul, is that sadness is often the path to repentance. That oftentimes to get to a place where we're willing to change, it requires some sorrow, it requires some pain, it requires some grief. There's, a, uh, there's a, a singer-songwriter that I know and, and love. His name's Derek Webb. I've quoted him before. And he had a, his most recent record. He was talking about the record. And he said, you know, growing up, there's always three things that he had, he had heard that we, we have to be able to learn to say in order to keep any relationship going. Whether it be with a spouse or a parent or an employee, co-worker, friend, whatever. Three things that we need to be able to say and mean in order to keep this relationship going and healthy. And those three things ended up being what he called this latest record. I was wrong, I'm sorry, and I love you. I was wrong, I'm sorry, and I love you. And if we, the church, if, if we're going to do this thing together, if this is going to be good, if this is going to be what, what God would desire for, for our church and in this community, if we're going to have any kind of real impact on each other and the world around us, then we need to learn how to say and mean these three things to each other and to our community. I was wrong. I'm sorry. And I love you. And what we're going to see in the conclusion of this section that Paul is writing to the church in Corinth today, we're going to see that this has been Paul's aim for the church. This is what everything he's been doing is to move them toward this end. That they would say that they were sorry, that they were wrong, and that they loved. And not Paul, not say it to Paul, but to say it to their God. And that's what we're called to as well. So we're going to start out, first point here, I was wrong and I'm sorry. Looking at verse 8. Paul says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I did not regret it. Paul, if you recall, we've looked at before and Chris pointed us to us last week. Paul gave the Corinthian church a verbal version of a pain party. He, he wrote them this severe letter, they called it. He ripped the Corinthian church to shreds. He had some harsh, harsh things to say to the church. It's a letter that we don't have. It was written between First and Second Corinthians in our Bible. And maybe God knows that was, that was not rated PG. It should not, we should not see it. We don't know what Paul said. But Paul said some very harsh things. And, and here's the reality. Ministry, loving other people, sometimes demands harsh words. It sometimes demands extreme measures. Why? Because crouching at the door. We're not playing games here. Sin is real. Sin has real consequences. It it has, it brings real destruction. The wages of sin, Paul said, is death. We're not playing around here. God is not playing around here. And so because sin is so extreme, oftentimes we need to go to extreme measures to point that out to people. This is a picture of my mom and my sister back in 1990 when we lived in Pennsylvania. The lesson is that fashion never dies. I remember one day when we were we were we were in the kitchen and I was sitting at the at the table. My sister was sitting on the counter, uh, next to the stove. My mom was cooking on said stove, and um, as we were sitting there talking, like Frankinos do, um, we started to smell. My mom started to smell something. She smells this. She sees this smoke. She smells this burning, and it's not coming from the stove. It's coming from my sister so she turns to her. Now, in this moment, she does not turn to her and say, sweetie, um, I would love it if you would get up and walk over to the sink and turn it on and put your head under the sink. And, you know, because I don't want you to become a human torch, right? What, what does she do? She sees what's going on. Her first reaction, which is always her first reaction, was to scream, <laughs> And to grab my sister, throw her on the floor, throw her around like a rag doll. I'm just sitting there mouth agape like, what is... Go- my sister's dying right before my eyes and my mom's the one killing her. So in the, in the moment, in the moment, my sister's not getting a kick out of this, okay? She's crying, she's screaming, she's freaking out, she's not having a good time. There's sorrow in my sister's life. But what she... Is, under, needs to understand is that the long term this is for her best. Like it's better that she spends this momentary you know wrestling session with my mom as opposed to living the rest of her life burnt to a crisp. Temporary sadness avoiding long-term consequences and just like the pain party that I gave to the boys and just like the stop drop and roll technique that my mom applied. We need to, Paul needed to, get the attention of this church. This church was hurtling off a cliff. And he didn't have time to say, guys, you know, you need to stop what you're doing. It could result in eternal damnation. He had to take extreme measures. He had to grab them and throw them on the ground and say, stop what you're doing. It's going to destroy you. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Paul said, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurts you, but only for a little while. Paul temporarily regretted the sorrow, the pain that he caused them by his harsh words. See, we should never get pleasure. We should never get a kick out of pointing people towards sorrow. Toward rebuking a brother or sister, toward disciplining somebody, toward pointing out sin into people's lives, when a, when a parent disciplines a child, spanks a child, you hear the phrase, "This hurts me more than it hurts you," and and, and it should. But I'm doing this, I'm I'm, I'm allowing this temporary pain to happen because I'm looking long term. I'm doing this out of your best interest because I love you. And Paul for a moment, he goes, man, did I go too far? Did I I say too much? Was I I too harsh? I regretted it because it hurts you. It hurts you for a little while. And when we have to point out sin to a family member or to a friend and take harsh measures, we should not get some sick thrill out of it. We're not here to run around and judge people and point out their sins and just push ourselves up by pushing other people down. That's that's not what Paul is talking about here. It should pain us to see others sorrowful over what they've done. But ultimately, Paul says in verse 9, he says, Yet now I'm happy. He says, I, I did regret it. I was bummed out that I saw you in that moment of pain, but I'm happy now. Why? But beca- not, not because you were made sorry. I'm not happy because you were sorrowful. That's not what I'm happy about. He says it, but because, why? Your sorrow led you to repentance. The joy in Paul's life was not because they were sorrowful. It was because that sorrow led them to, to repentance. For you became sorrowful, Paul said, as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Ultimately, Paul did not regret causing them some pain in the moment because of what it led to. It led to their repentance. So if this is why Paul's happy. I think we need to understand what is repentance? What is this that Paul wanted to see them led to? So we'll look at, A, what repentance is, and then we'll briefly look at what repentance does and what that looks like. Repentance as a, a commentary guy named Lowry says, is a change of mind involving action in accord with God's will. So this is, what, this is the kind of change that God wants to see, and it's a change of mind that results in a change of action. I used to think this way, now I think that way. And because I've changed the way I'm thinking, my behavior has changed as well. So repentance involves change, not just up here, but out here. And and John Piper said it this way, it's a change of attitude or behavior that results from the feeling of remorse over sin. In other words, you do something wrong in your life, you sin, you look at it, there's remorse, there's sorrow over what you've done, but that sorrow results in change of thought and attitude and action. Now, to understand, there's two important distinctions that we need to make here. If we're going to really understand kind of what this looks like in our lives and what it doesn't look like in our lives. The first distinction is there's a difference between sorrow and repentance. They're not the same thing. Sorrow is sadness. It's grief. It's, this, it's that heaviness that you feel. It's oftentimes that, that shame and that guilt that comes from you know what you did was wrong. Repentance is the change that comes from it. Could be said this way. So sorrow is feeling badly about what you did. Repentance is the change that occurs because of that sorrow. So I regret what I did, and so I'm gonna make a change. Think of the example of a, a child stealing a cookie. Okay? Classic example: child sees the cookie jar on the counter. Decides, knows it's not time for dessert, doesn't care, grabs the cookie, steals the cookie, eats the cookie. Parent catches said child with cookie and hand crumbs all over face. Child is busted, okay? Parent disciplines child, spanks child, sends them time out, whatever. We're not going to get into that debate right now. Child's in trouble, okay? Child feels sorry for what they've done. They got caught. They got disciplined, Okay? disappointed their parents. There is sorrow from the action, from the crime, from the sin. Repentance says, I am going to, because I, I don't like that feeling. I don't, I don't like what just happened. I'm going to change my mind. Okay? I'm gonna, I, I don't want to be deceitful toward my parents anymore. I want to be a respectful citizen of this household from now on. Okay? I want to be above reproach when it comes to cookie eating. And, and then it results in a change of action. I'm going to quit my cookie-stealing ways. I'm not going to do that anymore. Okay? I'm, going to, I'm going to wait until my parents offer me a cookie, and then I'm going to take it from them. Okay? And this leads us to our second important distinction. Sorrow leads to repentance, but there are two different kinds of sorrow that we can experience. And Paul mentions this in verse 10. He says there's a worldly sorrow and there's a godly sorrow. We need to understand the difference because we've experienced both of them. Only one, only one is from God. Worldly sorrow is feeling sorry that you got caught, the child can feel sorry, can be bummed out, can, it, that they got caught, okay? Caught red-handed. They are now stamped as a cookie thief. They've been humiliated in front of their siblings, in front of their friends. They've lost the praise of men. And they're sorry that their plan backfired. They're sorry that they didn't get what they wanted. Sorry that they got punished. Sometimes you get caught. You get busted, and we feel sorrow, but it's sorrow because we got caught and we got busted. To say it like this, pride will always regret making a fool of itself. Pride will always regret making a fool of itself. We want to look great in this world. That's, that's our, our proud heart. And so when we get caught, we don't look great anymore, and that, that, we don't like that. We want to look great. And so there's sorrow that comes from getting caught. Godly sorrow is feeling sorry that you dragged God's name in the dirt and that you hurt other people. Godly sorrow says, I am a Christian. By definition, I'm a little Christ. I'm his ambassador on this earth representing him. And I just, I just drug God's name to the dirt. I was a terrible representative of him. He asked me to do something and I disobeyed God. I disappointed God. Or I hurt other people by my actions. See, worldly sorrow looks in and see what it makes us look like. Godly sorrow looks out and see how it affects him and how it affects other people. That conviction that comes from the word of God putting its finger on our lives and saying we have done wrong and we've broken the heart of God. Godly sorrow... ...sees this sorrow as a good thing. It sees sorrow as a good thing... ...but in the same way that pain is a good thing. Let me explain what I mean by that. It's a good thing not that by itself it's a good thing... ...but because it leads to something else that is good. If I have a deep cut... ...the pain is good... ...not because I like the feeling of that pain... ...but because it lets me know... I need a band-aid, or I need to go to the hospital. I need to do something to prevent myself from bleeding to death. The pain is good because it can help prevent a more devastating outcome. It's good that I felt that pain inside so that we did not miss that tumor before it was inoperable. The pain is good because it leads to something good. In the same way, that godly sorrow that we feel when we've done something wrong is like the pain is to disease. It's God's gracious gift of warning. It says, I don't like that feeling, and so I need to stop. I need to make a change. On the other hand, worldly sorrow just simply tries to numb the pain or avoid the pain. We just don't like the symptoms, and we stop there. I don't, I don't like the cut, but instead of seeing where that cut led me, I just sit in despair and try to do whatever I can to make that hurt go away. Don't see that there's a root cause to that symptom. And finally, in verse 10, Paul says this. He says, verse 10, godly sorrow, and here's the bottom line godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no, leaves no regret. He says, you will not regret feeling this kind of sorrow. See, again, sorrow is different than repentance. And the reason Paul's happy is because the sorrow that the church felt led them to a change of attitude and behavior. And we'll see in a moment, he sent Titus to go follow up after he sent this super harsh letter. Titus comes back and he brings them this report. And the report is, the people have repented. That the momentary sorrow you caused them by the harshness of your letter led them to a change of heart, of attitude, and of behavior. And for that, Paul is rejoicing. But even that, even the repentance, that's not the end. He says, godly sorrow brings repentance and that leads to salvation. Now there's a lot of Christian buzzwords there. So we break it down. Salvation simply means deliverance or rescue. And what he's saying is that that sorrow that you felt led to a change which brought about rescue from sin. He says, that's where this whole thing's going. My, my favorite definition of, of repentance is simply this. It's turning to God from sin. Turning to God from sin. Now, these prepositions, are, are this order of this, this, this sentence is very important. This is all the difference between saying, I turn from sin to God. And let me explain. If we turn from sin to God, I say, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to clean up my act and now I come to God and he accepts me because now I'm I'm clean. What's the basis of that acceptance in that in that situation? It's based on my works. It's based on my ability to please God. But if I'm turning to God from sin, I turn to him and say, God, I need you. I need your rescue. I need your deliverance in my life. I can't do anything about it. And what we experience in that repentance that brings about salvation is God's gracious rescue and the sin stops. He rescues us from the penalty of sin. He rescues us from the power of sin. And we experience that both as believers. When we, when we first come to him as, as sinners... And we experience that as believers on a daily basis, that we turn to our God and say, God, this is in my life, and I don't want it anymore, but I can't stop it and then come to you. I've got to turn to you and experience your healing power, your forgiving power, your rescue from this sin. And now my acceptance before God is based on his grace, and it's based on his Son's righteousness on my behalf. The best example that I, one of the best examples I know of in Scripture of this kind of sorrow is Peter. Think about that moment, that darkest hour of Jesus' life. And here, one of his closest friends, one of his, his inner disciples, denies that he even knows Jesus. And the rooster crows, and Peter's eyes lock with Jesus's. And it says, Peter wept bitterly. Peter experiences the godly sorrow that comes. He just broke his Savior's heart. He just denied Jesus. But that sorrow led Peter to a change. And it led to restoration. Remember that moment, they're sitting there on the beach when Jesus rose from the dead and they're having breakfast and Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter says, yes, yes, yes. He says, then feed my sheep. And what came out of Peter's life? He became the rock that all of the churches since then have been built on. Peter's initial sorrow led him to a change in his life that brought about restoration, that brought about deliverance. But then there's another kind of sorrow that Peter... uh, Paul talks about here, he says, but worldly sorrow brings death. The best example of this kind of sorrow was on that same day, at that same time, when Judas, another one of his disciples, also betrayed him, sold his Savior out for 30 pieces of silver. And did that silver satisfy Judas? Did that change his life? Did that give him everything he'd ever wanted? Was he glad that he did that? No, he regretted it. He experienced sorrow and he took that silver and he threw it on the ground. But the difference was that Peter, that, that Judas stayed there in that sorrow. It did not lead him to a change. It did not lead him to his Lord. It led him to a piece of rope and Judas hung himself. And we see very clearly that worldly sorrow brings death. In Judas's case, it was physical death. And in our lives, if we just see the hopelessness of, of who we are apart from Christ, and we see the sin and the destruction that we cause in our hearts, how sinful we are, but it doesn't lead us to our Savior, the only thing it's going to bring is despair and death. Death means separation. Feeling sorry about who you are and what you've done doesn't bring you to God. John Piper said this, and I love this, and I want to quote him at length here. He said, If there's any work of the devil that the Son of God died to destroy, it's this one. If there's anything that Jesus, when he came here to save us from, the work, the thing that Satan's trying to do in our lives, this is what he came to save us from. It says, Namely, robbing God's children of the enjoyment of their forgiveness. Yes, we have sinned, but we are forgiven. Yes, we have done wrong, but Jesus came and made it right. Satan tries to rob us of that forgiveness. He says, godly grief throws us at the foot of the cross. Godly grief says, yes, what I've done is wrong, and I feel momentary sorrow over it, but I go to the one who heals. I go to the one who forgives. The dying Christ slays the dragon of guilt. Apart from him, we can wallow in our guilt and shame and feel like we're not good enough to come in God's presence, and we're not... But he whispers lies to us that we're not good enough and there's nothing that anyone, including Jesus, could do about it. And Jesus says, that's a lie. And Jesus frees us to turn boldly away from sin. He releases us from the shackles as prisoners to this power and the the penalty of sin in our lives. He rebuked the defeated devil. He says, get behind me. And we can walk joyfully with God in the narrow path of righteousness that leads to life. Through the power of forgiveness, we've been released from the shame and guilt of sin in our lives so that we can boldly approach God's throne, boldly walk with him, not on the basis that I didn't do those things, but that Jesus came and took my place, that he suffered for me, that he is now, I can walk in righteousness, not my own righteousness, but the righteousness that Jesus is for me, in and through me. The last distinction Paul says in verse 8, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. It caused some regret, but only for a little while. And here's the, the, the last distinction. Worldly sorrow is that in sin, the pleasure is for a little while and the sorrow remains. In sin, the pleasure is for a little while, the sorrow remains. We do something, we get that temporary kick, we get that temporary high. When I look at that website, when I interact with that person that's not my spouse, when I, when I do that thing that I know is wrong, it feels good for a moment. But what remains is that regret. What remains is that sorrow. It did not give me what I thought it could give me. It did not give me the satisfaction that I thought it could. But in godly sorrow, in repentance, in repentance, the sorrow is for a little while and the pleasure remains. That in the moment when, when God puts his finger on the sin in our lives, it hurts. And someone speaks to us and says, you shouldn't be doing that. And it hurts and we feel that sorrow and we feel that shame and, and we've been called out and we've been exposed. And it hurts for a moment, but in the long run if we allow that sorrow to turn to God from that sin and experience his forgiveness, what remains is the pleasure and the joy and the satisfaction of resting in our God and in our Savior. What repentance is, is turning to God from sin, experiencing that change of mind and action that comes from Christ's deliverance. What repentance does, we see in the lives of the Corinthians. And very briefly here, I'm not even going to read the verse, but but Titus comes back and he gives this report. He says, look at, check out what the Corinthian church is doing. Look at how this has changed them. And he points out seven things. You see, we know, how do you know a tree? How do you know what kind of tree it is? You know a tree by its fruit, right? It's an apple tree because there's apples on it. We know a repentant sinner because of the way that they live their lives. Because of the actions that come from that forgiveness, from that repentance. And so Paul finds these seven evidences in their lives. And very quickly, he sees earnestness. It's an eagerness to do right. This church no longer wants to do the wrong thing. They've gotten rid of the false teachers and now they want to do what God wants them to do. Number two, he sees an eagerness to clear yourselves. It's a strong desire to clear your name and remove the stigma of sin. In other words, to disassociate yourself from that wrong thing. Number three, indignation. That means a, a hatred of sin and its effects. We need to have a hatred of sin because of the devastation that it brings. Not a hatred of sinners, a hatred of sin. and want nothing to do with it and want to see it stop. Number four, alarm. This could be translated fear. Titus said there's, a lo- there's fear in the hearts of these people. That is a proper fear and reverence of God. They understood who God was, and that's where everything stems from. Everything stems from a a proper view of who God is. Number five, a longing. This is a longing to restore the relationship that was broken. They saw that between Paul and the church, that they wanted to mend this tenuous relationship, and they also, and more importantly, wanted to see their relationship restored with their God. Number six, a concern. He sees what concern I saw amongst these people. This is, could also be translated zeal. It's to love something so much, you would hate anything that would hurt it. I love other people so much that I hate anything, any kind of sin, anything that, that destroys them. I love God so much that I hate anything that drags his name through the dirt. And this is what he's seeing in this church. And finally, number seven, it's a readiness to see justice done. This is wanting justice, even if that involves you. The repentant heart says, I want to see the wrongs made right, even if that involves me. That I can be forgiven of that DUI, but there's still consequences. I may have to do some community service. I may have to go to prison for a while. There, there's consequences. You know, I, I had that affair and there's been forgiveness. The relationship has been restored, but there's a long path to be made still. There are consequences to our behavior. And the repentant heart says, I want to see the wrongs righted, even if that means that I've got to do some work, even if that means justice has to be served with me. I was wrong and I'm sorry. That's the repentance that we need to see. And then finally, and I love you. And this is the most important part that we need to be able to say. I love you. See, repentance is necessary to restore shattered relationships between people and people and between people and God. The purpose of repentance is restoration. The, The purpose of repentance is to restore broken relationships to be able to restore love between people where it was broken, between the cookie thief and their mother, between the wayward spouse and their lover, between the prodigal son and his father, between us and God. I was wrong, I'm sorry, and I love you. In the Corinthians, and we're not going to read it for time, but 12 through 15, the Titus comes back and he says, check this out. Look at the way they've changed. And he gives this amazing report. He says, I came to them and they received me. They obeyed the instruction that you and I gave them. They're loyal to you. They can't wait to see you. He says, it's been restored. This relationship has been restored. And that's the whole point. Not just change for change's sake, but so that we can have right relationship with God and with others. And finally, Paul says in verse 16, he says, I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. And this is what's at the end of the line. Basically, Paul says, I trust you. And on the road, we see sadness leading us to repentance, which leads us to salvation, the, this, this forgiveness and healing, which restores relationship and ultimately restores trust. And that's when you know that you're at the end of the road, when there is trust there. And Paul says, I have confidence in you as a body. So what do we do with this? What what are we supposed to take away from this? How is this supposed to change this week in my life? What do I do? What, What does God have for me in this? Two applications that I want to make, and then we'll be done. Number one, we need to be willing to cause godly sorrow. We need to be willing to cause godly sorrow in the lives of others. Now, this does not mean running around, pointing out everybody, everybody else's faults all the time, being super judgmental. This means if you see a brother or sister caught in sin, a brother or sister, that, that you have a voice in their lives, and that's an important part, that you're willing, that you love them enough to point it out to them. That you love them enough that you may have to say harsh words, that you may have to take harsh measures That might mean cutting the relationship off for a little while. That might mean saying something to them that they don't want to hear. It might mean causing them some temporary pain. And like Paul, he said, I regretted it for a little while. It should hurt us. It should kill us to have to say that because you know the pain that's going to cause them. But he said, I love you enough to see temporary pain in order for long-term growth to occur. And it's not easy. I'm not going to lie to you. And you've experienced that in your life before. This, this work of God is, is not easy, but it's necessary. We need to be willing to cause godly sorrow. And number two, we need to be willing to accept godly sorrow. Put yourself on the other end of that conversation. How do you receive that harsh word? How do you ext- ex- receive that extreme measure? How do you receive that sorrow? Do you get defensive? Do you get defensive and say no? And and we're so quick to justify ourselves, to explain away what we've done, or or so quick to point out the flaw of the person talking to you. Well, you're no better than me, or, or everybody's doing the same thing. I'm no different than anybody else. I'm not that bad. Or do we allow, do we hear that word that God could be speaking into our lives? And do we allow that sorrow to move us to repentance and move us toward the deliverance that only God can offer. We as a church need to be willing to say to each other, I was wrong, and I'm sorry, and I love you. Let's pray. Father, every single day we find ourselves caught in things that break your heart, and we are, we are so faithless it's so easy for me to turn to other things that I think will give me a, a temporary high or kick, and I believe that those things can give me what I want, give me the things that only you can give. And Father, I pray that, that we would be a church that would that when, when those things are pointed out to us, when we see those sins, that we'd be willing to hear the person, even if we don't like the way they said it, even if there's other things we could point out in their lives that are wrong as well, but we'd be able to hear that word but not stay there, not wallow in the guilt and the shame and say, well, I'm such a terrible person and let that sorrow lead us to death, lead us to despair, but that we would be a church that could hear that word and allow that sorrow to, rem- to move us to the one who's forgiven us, to move us to the one who's healed us, who's restored us, who's given us his life and, and his righteousness, to be a church that does not believe the lie of Satan, that we are not worthy to stand in God's presence. We are worthy to stand in his presence because of who Christ is in us. Father, move us to repentance, that we might be a church that changes our thoughts, that changes our behaviors, resulting in a turning to you. God, restore us in hopes that we might be a church that that loves each other and loves you and can be a light to this world. And it's in your son's name, the only place of forgiveness and love and restoration that we pray, amen.